you get the uniform? Bought it. I didn't know Woolworth sold clothes. Don't show your ignorance. This frock. Frock? You heard me, frock. When a dress costs over a hundred bucks, it's a frock. All that's worrying me is my neck is killing me. Oh, wait, I'll fix it for you. Where is it? Right in there. See yeah? mm-hmm. How's that feel? Mm-hmm. Oh, no kidding, Dot. A century and a half this dress set me back. Don't you like it? Oh, you look like somebody else. I am somebody else on Little Red Riding Hood. That's his idea of a good time. You know the old bromide went in Greece, opened a restaurant. Yeah, I'll take mink. What's the matter with the sapper? You see a Scotchman or something? I ain't so sure he's a sapper at all. He's a whole lot different. I can't make him out. You mean to tell me he ain't even falling for you? Falling? He ain't even tripping. He don't look at me. He looks right through me. Well, I'm just part of his routine, like his paints and brushes. Say, if I didn't know you real well, I'd say you were going sour. What do you do up there all day long? Just sit around and look at the ceiling. I'm supposed to see the stars. The great, big, beautiful stars. Stop, stop. You're breaking my heart. And the picture he's painting, he's going to call it Hope. Hope? Yeah. He thinks I'm just full of hope. I think he's just full of hop. Listen, come and call me at 4 o'clock, will you? Oh, gee, Dot, you sleep too much. You're getting awful fat. Oh, I shouldn't worry. If I get too fat, I'll get married and retire. Mary? Who's going to marry you? Say, do I look like a cripple or something? I read somewhere in a book that you can't have your cake and eat it, too. Oh, baloney. Sure you can have your cake and eat it. Yeah, how? Have two cakes. You're listening to episode 99 of Sassmouth Dames podcast. I'm your host, Megan McGurk. Ladies of Leisure was a star vehicle for Barbara Stanwyck. Teamed with Marie Prevost, the hard-boiled pair managed to carve out a living in the Depression. In the following year, 1931, when mobsters came into fashion and Warner Brothers with the likes of Little Caesar and the Public Enemy, Stanwyck and Prevost had first shown us how the rackets cater to rich men. Capra's picture doesn't give us a whiff of the underworld. All we see is the society set who want to have their cake and eat it too. Barbara Stanwyck was poised to shoot the works in a story about a woman who is nearly lost to herself through society's judgments. Stanwyck made it look so easy on the big screen that it's easy to forget how many obstacles lay in her path that could have prevented her from taking on the role of Kay Arnold in Frank Capra's picture for Columbia. Aside from a Dickensian childhood, where she watched her mother pushed from a streetcar to her death, to years shuttled around from one foster home to the next, to dancing in a chorus review at the tender age of 15, Barbara Stanwyck had to overcome a lot. For another thing, Barbara Stanwyck hated screen tests. In Frank Capra's words, they were red rag to a sore bull. Barbara's experience shows how even the most talented actress faced challenges outside of her control that could thwart a career before it even started. At the end of 1927, Barbara Stanwyck had garnered superlative reviews for her dramatic Broadway debut in Willard Mack's The Noose. 
on the strength of her notices, she was invited to Cosmopolitan Studio on 125th Street for her first screen test. The audition was for the lead in a picture called Broadway Nights. The director, Joseph Boyle, was distracted. He was too busy trying to pick up a showgirl. Ernie Haller, who later became Betty Davis's favorite cameraman decades later, was assigned to shoot the test. Haller put the moves on Stanwick and asked her for a date. Stanwick was not interested. The scorned cameraman took his revenge and shot Stanwick unfavorably with poor lighting and bad angles. The script for the test had called for Barbara to cry. She had trouble getting the tears to come, probably because the well was dry since she sobbed on stage every night um, for the news, which was still in production. The director pried himself away from the scantily clad dancer long enough to try the methods they always use to get the floodgates to open, a sliced onion, a mournful set of notes from a violin, a sad tune on the piano. While they waited for Stanwick to turn on the waterworks, Ruth Chatterton, a big star then on Broadway, appeared on set and made cutting remarks about the amateur tricks involved in making pictures. Chatterton was there with a maiden toe to test for the same part. She scoffed at their methods, noting that professionals in the theater would never resort to such tactics. A press agent on the set intervened to defend Stanwick. He snapped back at Chatterton, saying that Barbara's performance brought critics back night after night just so they could have a good cry. In the end, Stanwick didn't get the lead. Neither did Ruth Chatterton. In 1929, Barbara was scheduled for a screen test in Warner Brothers, directed by Alexander Korda. By that time, she was living in Hollywood with her vaudevillian husband, Frank Fay. The studio had put almost no preparation into the test, other than to say they wanted it done in Technicolor. It was shot after hours when the studio was empty. No one from wardrobe or makeup was there to help prepare her for the test. Barbara arrived to an empty soundstage, except for the director and a cameraman borrowed from another soundstage. The New York actress was in her street clothes and wore no makeup. Corda asked if she had a scene prepared, something she could do at a moment's notice without a script. She told Corda she could do a scene from the noose without a script. Barbara chose the critically acclaimed scene she played uh, as a girl who begs a prison warden for the body of a condemned man. The man on death row had been unaware that she loved him. She begs for the body so she can give him a a proper funeral. When Barbara had finished the scene, she noticed the director had tears in his eyes. He walked over, took her hands, and said he was leaving Hollywood a failure, but that she had given him the honor of directing a real actress. He was grateful. He apologized for the shabby treatment by the studio and kissed her hand. Alexander Corda was at the end of a two-year contract and already knew the studio was not picking up his option. When Warner Brothers ran the test, the front office decided that neither the girl nor the director had anything to offer pictures. 
After three mediocre pictures, Broadway Nights, The Locked Door, and Mexicali Rose, Barbara Stanwyck decided to quit pictures. She had planned to return to the New York stage, where she was the critic's darling and made double the salary she had in Hollywood. Over at Columbia, they were casting the lead in a picture directed by Frank Capra. Studio boss Harry Cohn had seen Barbara dance at a charity benefit in Hollywood and suggested to Capra that he meet with her to star in the picture. By the time Barbara walked into Frank Capra's office, she was ready to board the next train. Capra's office overlooked a dilapidated courtyard in the studio with a fountain that collected so many cigarette butts it looked like an ornate ashtray. It was unlikely the Gower Street studio held any Hollywood mystery for the actress from New York. Barbara sat on the edge of her chair during the interview, offering curt answers to the usual questions about the parts she she had played and who she had worked with. Then Capra asked her to make a test. She told him, either I'm qualified to play this role or I'm not. I'd like to play it, but I won't make a test if I never do another picture. I've already made tests, and they were a complete waste of everyone's time, including mine. Capra was adamant, no test, no picture. Stanwick couldn't get out of there fast enough. Capra told Harry Cohn to forget about her. She wasn't an actress, she was a porcupine. Shortly after she left, a call came through from Frank Fay. What did you do to my wife, he wanted to know. Capra wanted no part of his wife. She came in here with a chip on her shoulder and went out with an axe on it, he told the man. Frank Fay responded with the only decent thing he ever did for Barbara Stanwyck and asked Capra to watch her screen test before he made up his mind. Fay had the three-minute test she had done for Warners. He would send it right over. Capra was dead set against Barbara Stanwyck. Nothing would change his mind and make him like her. But he watched the test, and he watched her beg for the body of a condemned bootlegger, and soon Capra had tears in his eyes and an egg-sized lump in his throat. Any actress that could win him over when he opposed her had something. He rang Harry in a flash, signed Stanwyck, don't let her get away. If Stanwyck had a raw deal with her screen tests, and she did, the opposite occurred once she signed for Ladies of Leisure. The director soon learned that the star did not respond to rehearsal. If anything, her performance grew worse the more she did a a scene. She gave her all the first time on the first take. Rather than force his way on the novice, like so many other directors would have, Capra changed his method of production to suit the star. Capra recognized that the emotional fire she banked within were precious and lost power once she let them flow. Years later, Stanwyck explained why. It came from her stage training with Willard Mack. The curtain went up every night at 8.30 and you'd better be good. On the stage, there were no second takes, she recalled. You give your all the first time. In his memoir, Capra stressed the one-take approach and claimed Stanwyck didn't rehearse. In order for Barbara to perform at her best, Capra improvised. Stanwyck had the space and time to let her feelings simmer and percolate. She never uttered a word on set until the cameras rolled. 
Capper had three cameras on set so he could be sure he didn't need a retake. He wanted the crew to be able to capture it on the first take and not to let it get away. In her dressing room, while Helen Ferguson did her hair, Capra talked about the next scene, how the character would be feeling, what she was thinking. And as they discussed it, she fell into a sort of a state of self-hypnosis, withdrawn in preparation for the camera. Capra would lead her to the set, and then Helen would give Barbara cues. Before he called action, Capra would remind Barbara to finish the scene no matter what the other actors did, even if they blew a line or stopped. She barely responded to anything he said, but she heard every word. He knew it. Capra had the good sense to get out of her way. Edward Burns, the sound man, who became Capra's mixer on every other picture he did in Columbia, except Miracle Woman, corrects the account offered by the director. Burns explained that Capra created this mystique around his professional collaboration with Stanwyck in the story about the lack of rehearsals. Burns noted that it would have hardly been advisable to stick in his leading lady in cold on the set with other actors, and it would be unfair to the rest of the cast. Stanwyck did participate in rehearsals, Burns recalled, but she did it at half speed. She didn't give it her all or unleash unleash the emotional tides until the cameras rolled. Burns recalled in an interview when he finally brought her onto the set, it was like bringing on a ticking time bomb. You had to be ready. Capper held the crew and cast to a high standard. Everything hinged on getting optimal conditions for Barbara and getting the first shot. Stanwyck recalled how ideal it had been working with Capra. She responded to their quiet conferences in her dressing room. Barbara liked the fact that the director talked about a scene and he used the first person plural. That's how we'll do it, he said. He never walked around the set saying I, I, I like other directors. He set a collaborative mood. On other pictures, she would feel beleaguered by co-stars who would hold back take after take just to see what she was going to do before giving their all. Stanwyck did not view acting as a game of one-upsmanship. Her method was honest in style and practice. On Ladies of Leisure, paired with Marie Prevost, who had 70 pictures to her credit, and Lowell Sherman, another old pro, Stanwyck was surrounded by seasoned performers who could meet her first take method. I don't mind that Capra embellished what happened on set because it was done in the service of building up Stanwyck's legend. What a novelty to find a director who adds to the reputation for a star's genius, especially a woman's. Behind the camera, Capra ensured that Stanwyck could save her energy for the moment she had to bring the, the character to life. His touch is also recognizable on screen in the way he brings his studio experience to make the action meaningful. Cinematographer Joseph Walker had orders from Harry Cohn to lay out the glamour shots for Stanwyck. Cohn was simply following the industry standards at the time. Prestige studios such as MGM and Paramount photographed stars like Greta Garbo and Marlena Dietrich in glossy close-ups that made their skin appear like satin and their hair spun silk. 
Cohn knew if he wanted to sign stars to work in Columbia, he had to provide the glamour treatment. Walker did the same for Stanwyck until Frank Capra asked for realism instead of glamour. He felt they were losing something, and instead of making her look beautiful, the camera should capture her as she really was. Stanwyck, he believed, was on her way to becoming the greatest emotional actress of her time on the screen. Like most stars, Stanwyck was concerned with the way she looked on the big screen. While she viewed the dailies for the first time, she worried about how her mouth pulled to one side when she spoke quickly. She didn't like the way her hands looked or her throat. Capra noticed that afterwards, on set, Stanwyck held back. She tried to control her performance so that she lost her natural mannerisms. The simplest remedy was to keep Stanwyck away from the rushes, and he did. The scenes between Stanwyck and Marie Prevost are some of the finest in 30 years of woman's pictures. They set the gold standard for the two-against-the-world dynamic that informed so many other on-screen duos. We can see Stanwyck and Prevost's influence on Constance Bennett and Perk Kelton in Bed of Roses, Stanwyck and Teresa Harris in Babyface, Joan Crawford and Jean Dixon in Sadie McKee, and Joan Blondell and Glenda Farrell in their Gimme Girls series of eight pictures. At least half the woman's pictures from the Depression bear the imprint of Ladies of Leisure. Kay Arnold, played by Barbara Stanwyck, and Dot Lamar, played by Marie Prevost, are two gals who make a living on the vice of society men. We don't see the two women embroiled with bootleggers, pimps, or any brand of working-class syndicate. Instead, Kay and Dot skirt the edges of respectable graft conducted by upstanding members of society. The girls pay the rent with money from men who serve caviar in office party bacchanal and Napoleon brandy in an artist's loft. During the opening scene, the audience sees reckless behavior from the Park Avenue set. Dames with their name in the social register toss bottles of liquor off the 20th floor rooftop. They spray seltzer on family oil portraits and stand still only long enough to have sodden playboys draw caricatures on their bare backs. The rich dames in the opening scene contrast vividly with our introduction to Barbara Stanwyck's character. She's alone in a tiny rowboat going to shore. All we hear at first is her glorious voice, full of bass and brass. When she steps out of the boat, Barbara, though, is a vision of distress. She has a torn dress. Her eyes are stained with tears and raccoon mascara. What kind of banker's orgy did she just escape from? Society dames are spoiled brats, but the men they date and marry are predators. Did Stanwyck jump ship from one of those boozy night boats to Albany? The night boat to Albany was notorious for middle class and rich revelers to escape the statues of the Voldstead Act, which made prohibition the law since 1920. Twelve miles out from shore, passenger boats became floating bars and gambling dens. The boats catered to the tastes of men with big wallets. Kay is a self-described party girl, 
only she's not really a guest at the party as much as prey with a price on her head. Since they are 30 miles from New York City, Kay accepts a ride with the Restless Society artist Jerry Strong, played by Ralph Graves. Edward Burns, who hadn't been long in the sound department in Columbia, was called in for the night shoot on location at Malibu Lake for the scene where uh, Kay meets Jerry. A man named Blanchard, who was the head of sound in Columbia, had a proprietary take on Capper's pictures, probably because they were the studio's A productions. But this guy didn't want to work at night and passed the job off on Burns. On the drive out to the lake, cinematographer Joe Walker gave Ed some tips on working with Capra. Never cut a scene, he told the new guy. No matter what happens, let the scene finish and then share the problem with the director. While Burns set up the sound equipment, he watched Capra, who was young but already had the commanding presence of a veteran director. Burns trusted his equipment, but he wasn't tied to it. He wasn't sure if the microphone would pick up Barbara's voice when she was in the little boat on the lake, calling out to Ralph Graves, who, who stood on the shore. Then he figured out if he could hear it with his ears, the microphone would record it. It was cold that night. Even though Stamick wore a skimpy evening gown, she didn't complain. When she wasn't shooting, she stayed wrapped up in a blanket. The shoot didn't end until 4 o'clock Sunday morning. I was often was often the case in Hollywood. Since Sunday was the one day off, the cast and crew could be sure they could sleep in the next day. In the flat Kay shares with Dot, they trade lessons and sassmouth economics. When a man rings with a party invitation, Stanwick keeps her mind on business when Dot talking to him on the phone might be more inclined to think of the fun parts of the way they earn a living, like free caviar. Ever pragmatic, Kay tells her if the party's on a boat, lay off. Kay has compartmentalized the trauma. She can't afford to be anything less than resilient. Dot relays details about the job. It's in an office building. Kay declines the offer, but reminds Dot to have them send a car. Squeeze the Johns for all they're worth. Instead of showing us an antiquarian vision of sex workers, Ladies of Leisure shows us a modern version of enterprising dames who pick up the crumbs from society's graphs. The script from Joe Swirling has an eye trained on the hypocrisy of men in tuxedos who drink for a living and treat every woman as goods in a shopfront window display. Go ahead and look, Kay tells Lowell Sherman. It's free. She has so much contempt for the rich dipsomaniac that he's clearly wary of her by the time he makes his departure and apologizes on his way out the door. Joe Swirling's script removes the high-handed moralizing about desire and ambition in that old business about how much a woman might have and still be respectable. Barbara Stanwyck's Kay tells Marie Prevost-Stott that she read in a book somewhere that you can't have your cake and eat it too. In the context of women's sexuality, in the choice the flatmates have between the world's oldest profession and love and marriage, this centuries-old little proverb about dessert suggests that women can't have it both ways. They can be good or they can have fun and defy the rules. 
Marie Prevost, though, summons the logic of the sass mouth when she rejects the dichotomy. You can have your cake and eat it too. When Kay wants to know how, Dot simplifies it. Have two cakes. Dot Lamar doesn't care what people think, whether they call her cheap, lazy, or fat. She's living her best life. And if things get really bad, she can always get married. Capra bookends two scenes, night and day, to dramatize the shift in Barbara Stanwyck's character. As good as Joe's swirling script is, every scene is filled with zingers, Capra adds another dimension with his visual storytelling that doesn't need dialogue. Perhaps it comes from the years he spent working in silent pictures. Capra stages a woman's fear of rape, full of dread and suspense. After a long session posing for Jerry in his studio, Kay faints from exhaustion. It's late and pouring rain outside. Jerry suggests she spend the night and then they can continue working in the morning. As soon as he says the words, Kay stiffens. Her voice becomes cold and hard again. Kay expects one thing to happen and the audience expects it too. Bedded down for the night in the artist's loft, he will at some point turn up at her bedside and force the sex on her. She's been there before. Jerry will find an excuse to go to her in the middle of the night. The rain beating against the window cuts them off from the outside world. They make up the chaise lounge for her to sleep on. Kay is alert once he closes his bedroom door. She expects him. She knows he's coming. Her mind wanders while she waits. Maybe she thinks about Dot if she'll be worried about her, or maybe she thinks about the rent and when it's due, or what she'll do once this job is over. In her mind, though, she returns to what's about to happen. It's always there, looming large, what she'll say to him. We can see everything play out on Stanwyck's face in the dark. Then the camera shifts to Jerry's bedroom doorknob. It turns. Kay, alert, pretends to be asleep. The camera moves to Jerry's slippered feet, treading lightly across the carpet. Capra focuses the shots on the trappings of middle-class domesticity, the furniture, the rugs, the slippers, which brings the foreboding to the scene. The subtext here is that Jerry is the king of his castle, and he expects that he can have his way with the woman in the next room. When Jerry pauses in front of the sleeping woman, Kay probably holds her breath. I know I do each time I watch. Jerry unfolds a blanket over Kay, puts it over her, and then returns to his room, closing the door behind him. He doesn't attack Kay. She's surprised. The viewer is surprised. We felt her dread and then her relief when he doesn't rape her while she sleeps. When he does the gallant thing and covers her up, she can hardly believe that he's different from the rest. You can tell how magnetic the scene is when you see other directors lift it wholesale, as King Vidor did with Ruth Roman in Lightning Strikes Twice in 1951. Kay and Jerry don't say one word while all this happens, yet everything between them has changed. 
The next morning, we have the release of all the pent-up tension and emotion from the night before. Stanwick opens the valve on her emotions that have been locked up tight, probably for a very long time. Has she ever met a man who only wanted to be kind and make sure she was comfortable? It's like Kay had a visit from Santa, the Easter Bunny, and the Tooth Fairy riding a, a unicorn all at once. Kay Arnold is as hard-boiled as a 15-minute egg. She believed gallant men were another fairy tale, more myth than reality. The little domestic scene that Stanwyck cooks up in making a big breakfast that could feed the entire film crew and playing the good wife role, even if it's pretend, builds an emotionally taut scene. The mood in the scene is like a jack-in-the-box when the handle stops turning. Stanwyck is about to pop her lid. Lovestruck, she sits at the other end of the table with a daffy expression on her face staring at him while tears fall. What does she do now when a sass mouth is no good? If she's not serving wisecracks, what has she left? The tension, ready to explode, as we can see from the boiling coffee pot, mirrors that. There are two very different emotional fronts who collide in the morning, a little storm in the attic garret. She's fragile and emotional, and he's a bit cross. At one point, Stanwyck does something completely out of character for Kay Arnold when she clowns with a piece of toast. She tries to deflect her feelings, play it cool by asking, can you do this? A little game she had played with him the first time they met. And it's a game that's meant to recalibrate a man's mind. Play a game so it's not about sex. Divert his attention to something else. Instead of making a face, though, as she did before, this time she throws a bit of toast in the air, which bounces off her head. But wait a minute. That isn't toast she's throwing in the air. It's her heart. Kay has no tricks left. She's like a kid again, wrestling with unfamiliar feelings. Then... Jerry's father, a bigwig, interrupts their cozy breakfast with the news that he's investigated Kay Arnold. Like a condemned woman, Stamick reacts swiftly but quietly, saying, I'll get my things. Jerry stops her and sends his father away, but then he voices society's judgment, saying he knew what she was the moment they met when she lifted his pocketbook. She's a thief and a dirty little blackmailer. Now, you may be made of stronger stuff than me, but when he calls Stanwyck a dirty little blackmailer, the sobs come hard. How dare he? Stanwyck is in bits, her tear-stained face turned away from him in agony. For those of us in the audience, the words feel as violent as physical blows. But then Jerry shifts and sues Kay after he had denounced her. He promises they'll be together. They'll go away to Arizona and be together for, for always. There are some more plot twists. We have a visit from Jerry's mother at the little flat. Marie Prevost is in the middle of her session on the reducing machine, being adorable as always. She sizes up Jerry's mother in an instant, as, if, as, as is often the case. She heads off the society dame's judgment by shocking her. Marie adopts a palsy-walsy tone 
and gives the Park Avenue dame an earful about how no John is safe around Dot and Kay. What makes this picture one of my favorites is the relationship between Dot and Kay. Their friendship gives us a realistic portrayal of what life was like for working class women who made a bid to break out on their own in 1930. When you watch them, it seems reasonable that other women in 1930 learned something from them too. Kay is more business-minded about their career as party girls. Dot wants pleasure. When Lowell Sherman takes her out to dinner to get information about Kay, Dot orders everything on the menu. When the waiter tries to get high hat and asks what size coffee she wants, Dot snaps, do I look like a small coffee? A dame should never apologize for her appetite. On the surface, it looks like all Dot cares about is having fun. But Dot Lamar is made of stronger stuff than oysters, caviar, and two cakes. When the chips are down and her best gal needs her, Dot can perform miracles. Capra creates a riveting sequence of suspense which cuts back and forth from Stanwyck pulling out of the harbor on a ship bound for Cuba with Lowell Sherman and Marie Prevost who has to reach Jerry, Ralph Graves, in time. The elevator operator won't take her up to Jerry's flat on the rooftop on the 20th floor. So Dot, made up for a night with nothing more strenuous than drinking champagne and then playing hide the salami in the rumble seat, steals herself to the challenge. She says, 20 stories, here goes 20 pounds. Capra draws on his experience as a gag man in slapstick reels to build the suspense as the clock ticks. He builds a suspension on the unraveling of Marie's stylish ensemble. Marie runs up one flight after another, dressed in a fur-trimmed evening wrap, a turban, a cocktail dress, heels, and a full face of makeup. In one shot, she takes off the evening coat. On another floor, the turban comes off. By the 18th floor, Marie's dress is sliding off her shoulders, which are slick with sweat. Back and forth, the scenes cut between Stanwyck on the boat and Marie trying to climb the stairs in time. By the 20th floor, Dot Lamar can barely breathe, but she calls out frantically for Jerry Strong. Marie's ensemble is ready for the dustbin. She is shattered, slick with sweat, as though she just stepped from the shower. Her makeup is smeared all over her face but she delivers the message on her knees and gets Jerry to send a wire to the boat. Marie Prevost's grand gesture is above and beyond anything that Jerry is called to do. The so-called hero of this picture just picks up the phone and sends a telegram. Big deal. Marie Prevost has run a marathon up 20 stories to save her dear friend from sailing off with a loose playboy or worse. For a woman who likes to stay in bed until four o'clock, that is an expression of true love. Capra had bluffed his way into directing a picture for a wayward thespian who wanted a Kipling poem turned into a one-reel short. After that, Capra, fresh from a chemical engineering degree, worked in the prop department in Hal Roach Studio, where he quickly graduated to a gag man for our, uh, for, uh, our gang franchise. 
He also learned how to cut film in a film development lab for a year. After six months with Roach, Capra joined the writer's room in Max Sennett's studio alongside Tay Garnett, where he watched Leo McCary direct comedy reels. Capra came into his own writing slapstick gags for Harry Langdon, which made the vaudevillian comic a star in Sennett's studio. Capra had considered himself and styled himself a triple threat as producer, writer, and director, He finagled a a deal with Columbia to be all three for a flat fee of $1,000 a picture to start. By the time he made Ladies of Leisure, he was under contract to the studio at $1,500 a week. Capra had made hits for the Poverty Row studio, starting with Submarine in 1928, starring Ralph Graves and Jack Holt. In silent pictures, Capra searched comedy for the way it bridged drama and connected with larger emotional peaks and valleys of a story. The man who imagined a gag where a kitten had the ability to open a door that a big man could not understood the grace at play of a party girl who is knocked sideways by love and her sassmouth sidekick, who wrecked a good look and burned hard-won calories to save her best friend. In Ladies of Leisure, Cabra graduated from gag writer to filmmaker. He has the confidence to build depth of emotion beyond just laughs. Every gesture in the picture ties to something bigger, whether it's Marie's sore neck from the rumble seat versus Kay's sore neck from trying to see the stars through the ceiling. He has a woman's life on the brink of disaster in his hand, and Capra treats it with the utmost care. Capra had attempted to carry on with his work as a screenwriter when he agreed to adapt the the play Ladies of the Evening by Milton Herbert Gropper, which was staged by David Belasco in 1925. Capra was drawn to the story precisely for the way the hard-boiled working girl reveals another side to herself when she falls in love with the painter, that innocent quality. After he wrote a first draft, he called for a studio conference in Harry Cohn's office. Like most studios, screenwriting in Columbia was a collaborative effort. Feedback sessions were standard before production began. About 15 men were in attendance, One of the newly imported writers from New York shifted impatiently in his seat, chain-smoking White Owl cigars, while the script was read out loud. When Cohen asked what they thought, the consensus was the script was great. It was bound to be big a box office. But the writer from back east was the lone dissenting voice. He was angry at the yes-men. The man, Joe Swirling, thought it was a putrid piece of gorgonzola. It stunk when David Belasco staged it, and it still stinks. It was sappy and no good. Cohn informed the new writer that it was Capra's script, but that news failed to dampen Swirling's irate reaction. Capra intervened and said he really wasn't looking for praise. He wanted to make the script better. Could Swirling deliver? Could he write a better script? Swirling declared that if he couldn't, he'd walk back to New York. It was the old Camille story, he said. It just needed a twist. Swirling grabbed the script and went back to his hotel room. 
Three days later, he had 40 pages. Joe Swirling updated a soggy Victorian melodrama and gave it an infusion of sassmouth gold. As a New York reporter and playwright, Joe Swirling rubbed elbows with women like Kay Arnold and Dot Lamar. He knew their lingo and their struggle to put clothes on their back and keep their independence in a tough city run by men. Swirling's dialogue opens a new chapter in the talkies with the plummy Argo of women trying to make it on their own. Ladies of Leisure was a huge hit for Columbia. The picture put the studio on the map so that stars like Claudette Colbert and Carol Lombard signed to do loan outs. It paved the way for the Oscar coup that happened for It Happened One Night. Barbara Stanwyck became a star overnight. Photoplay magazine gushed about her in an article in a way they seldom did for an actress after one performance. In their review, they said the whole audience was choked up. In less than a year's time, she staged a contract dispute, Stanwyck did, holding out for $50,000 per picture. She knew what she was worth, and she wanted a share of the profits. She had the confidence to stand up to anyone in Hollywood, the moguls or directors and producers. Harry Cohn held her to the term she signed for, but then he raised her salary anyway. The men in the studio system respected Stanwyck's work ethic, and they recognized her talent, Harry Cohn included. Thanks for listening. You can support Sassmouth Dames by becoming a monthly subscriber on Patreon, or you can write a nice review on iTunes or social media. The following books helped me to write the episode, starring Miss Barbara Stanwyck, published by Ella Smith in 1985. A Life of Barbara Stanwyck, Steel True, 1907-1940, by Victoria Wilson published in 2013. The name above the title, an autobiography by Frank Capra, published in 1971. Frank Capra, The Catastrophe of Success by Joseph McBride, published in 2011. Mr. Burns Goes to Hollywood, My Early Life and Career in Sound Recording at Columbia with Frank Capra and Others by Edward Burns, published in 1999. Talking Pictures with the People Who Made Them by Sylvia Shores and Marion Abbott Bundy, published in 1994. Join me next time for episode 100 when I talk about Joan Crawford and the Women from 1939.